This is The Churches of the World, Chapter 1, Episode 7, the second of two parts on the New International Version of the Bible. Before I get started, a little program note. This episode is being released the week of Thanksgiving, at least in the U.S., in 2015. So primarily for that reason, this episode was intended to be a little shorter. But after recording, I realized it really wasn't. Oh well, anyway. For those of you that discovered the podcast well after that date, the date stamp will at least let you know how long the podcast was just waiting for you to find it. Or something like that. For the few of you who are listening in real time, you can binge on Turkey this week. And those who discover it later, try to limit your binge listening while getting caught up. Last week, I covered the history of the NIV and began to touch on the criticisms of its translation methodology. I addressed the gender-neutral language issue and will dive a little deeper into it this week. Also, I will address the problems and benefits of it being a paraphrase. In doing so, I will compare several passages from the NIV to prior versions, so you can be your own judge of the impact of the methodology. And now, let's wrap up the NIV with a dive into the criticism and with a somewhat deep comparison of it to other versions. The criticism of the NIV was infrequent when the first edition of the version was released, but as it grew in popularity, so did the number of critics. Most were critical of the translation philosophy, commonly called dynamic equivalence, which was a departure from the word-for-word literal philosophy that had been followed with the line of Bibles that traced their heritage to the King James Version. Consequently, there was criticism from conservatives who objected to the non-literal translation methodology. The translator's moderate use of the dynamic equivalence method in the version involved a trade-off in which accuracy was sometimes sacrificed for the sake of readability. Overall, it's easily seen that beginning with its initial publication, the NIV was well-received in most evangelical circles and even a few fundamentalist groups. Of course, this should not come as a surprise given the denominations that participated in the revision. However, even in the beginning, there were dissenters. For example, Stuart Custer, former chair of the Bible Department at the conservative fundamentalist Bob Jones University, complained that it was, quote, highly interpretive and very free, a new evangelical translation that deliberately removes all the old pronouns, such as thou, thee, and thy, even from prayer addressed to God, end quote. From a different side of the theological spectrum, a Lutheran observer concluded that, quoting again, although there are certainly worse translations on the market, there appears to be little about the New International Version which encourages replacing the New American Standard Bible, the Modern Language Bible, or even an expunged Revised Standard Version with it. End quote. Not exactly a ringing endorsement. The preface of the NIV emphasizes the diverse backgrounds of those involved in its making. Specifically, in quoting, they were from many denominations, including Anglican, Assemblies of God, Baptist, Brethren, Christian Reformed, Church of Christ, Evangelical Free, Lutheran, Mennonite, Methodist, Nazarene, Presbyterian, Wesleyan, and other churches. End quote. It also states that the diverse backgrounds served, quoting again, to safeguard the translation from sectarian bias. End quote. Critics think otherwise, as they often do. In 2009, N.T. Wright, at the time the Anglican Bishop of Durham, and a British New Testament scholar 
wrote that in the 1980 NIV obscured what the Apostle Paul was attempting to communicate, making sure that he, meaning Paul, conformed to Protestant and Evangelical tradition. He wrote, and bear with me as this is a very long quote, but I wish to avoid paraphrasing him, quoting, When the New International Version was published in 1980, I was one of those who held it with delight. I believed its own claim about itself, that it was determined to translate exactly what was there, and inject no extra paraphrasing or interpretive glosses. Disillusionment set in over the next two years as I lectured verse by verse through several of Paul's letters, not least Galatians and Romans. Again and again, with the Greek text in front of me and the NIV beside it, I discovered that the translators had had another principle, considerably higher than the stated one, to make sure that Paul should say what the broadly Protestant and evangelical tradition said he said. If a church only or mainly relies on the NIV, it will, quite simply, never understand what Paul was talking about. Yes, the New Revised Standard Version sometimes lets you down too, but nowhere near as frequently or as badly as the NIV. And yes, the NIV has now been replaced with newer adaptations, in which some at least of the worst features have, I think, been at least modified. But there are many who, having made the switch to the NIV, are now stuck with reading Romans 3.21-26 through 26 like this. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. God did this to demonstrate His justice. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, the righteousness of God in Romans 3.21 is only allowed to mean the righteous status which comes to people from God, whereas the equivalent term in Romans 3.25 and Romans 3.26 clearly refers to God's own righteousness, which is presumably why the NIV has translated it as justice, to avoid having the reader realize the deception. End quote. Bishop Wright's points seem valid, but probably a bit too nuanced for the intended audience of the version. In another example, the word Alma in Isaiah 7.14 was rendered virgin in the NIV, in accordance with the interpretation of the word in the first chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. This contrasted with the Revised Standard Version's rendering young woman in Isaiah 7.17, which was used instead of Matthew's virgin because the Revised Standard Version translators believed that Matthew was simply mistaken about the meaning of the word. But this was not an option for the NIV translators, who, as theological conservatives, were bound, among other things, by the oath they took to affirm that Matthew correctly interpreted the word. In Genesis 2.19, the NIV rendered the first verb in what linguists call an English plural perfect, and quoting from the chapter, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man. The plural perfect had formed was used here so as to explicitly harmonize the verse with the account of creation given in chapter 1 in which the animals are created prior to the creation of man. The so-called harmonistic rendering was intended to counter the assertion that the story beginning at Genesis 2-4 is from a source which does not agree with the account in the first chapter. 
I'll dive deeper into Genesis 1 and 2 in a few episodes. In Genesis 2.19, a translation such as the New Revised Standard Version uses the word formed in a plain past tense. Specifically, it says, So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal. Theologian John Selhamer, a professor at Golden Gate Theological Seminary and a former president of the Evangelical Theological Society, stated that, quote, Not only is such a translation hardly possible, but it misses the very point of the narrative, namely, that the animals were created in response to God's declaration that it was not good that the man should be alone. But in my opinion, and granted I wasn't there to witness the event, the addition of the word had really doesn't change the meaning. In both, God formed the animals. To me, the timing of it is all very irrelevant. Further, the critics claim that the 2011 New International Version altered key verses that define the roles of women, such as 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. The King James Version reads, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And the Revised Standard Version reads, I permit no woman to teach or have authority over men. She is to keep silent. While the NIV reads, I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. The difference is if a woman can have authority over a man or a group of men. In my mind, the difference is minor and really doesn't change the meaning of the passage. The difference between the NIV and earlier versions in Nahum chapter 3 verse 13 is a little starker. The King James Version reads, Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open upon thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. And the Revised Standard Version reads, Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your foes. Fire has devoured your bars. While the 2011 NIV reads, Look at your troops. They are all weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. These alterations were viewed by critics as allowing for interpretations consistent with cultural norms regarding the equality of men and women, but were not seen as accurately reflecting the original language of the scriptures. But I'll let you judge for yourself. The Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, yes, there is such an organization, which reviewed the 2011 NIV, issued a statement saying they could not endorse it because of what they said were over 3,600 gender-related problems. Their words, not mine. However, the professor of New Testament studies at the Dallas Theological Seminary, Daniel B. Wallace, praised the 2011 update, saying that, quote, It is a well-thought-out translation, with checks and balances through rigorous testing, overlapping committees to ensure consistency and accuracy. End quote. But the Southern Baptist Convention rejected the 2011 update because of the gender-neutral language, even though it dropped some of the gender-neutral language of the previous Today's New International Version. However, the Southern Baptist publisher Lifeway declined the Southern Baptist Convention's request to censor and therefore remove the updated New International Version from their stores. Also, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod cautioned against its use. But the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod stated many decisions in the updated translation are right and defensible, and they will use it in their new hymnal. But let's get back to some of the differences. In Esther 8.11, 
The NIV adjusts something that many readers of the Bible, and actually many non-Judeo-Christians too, have found objectionable. The narrative states that a decree issued by Xerxes allowed the Jews to massacre the whole population of any nation that threatens their lives. According to the Jewish Publication Society's translation in 1985, the king has permitted the Jews of every city to assemble and fight for their lives. If any people or province attacks them, they may destroy, massacre, and exterminate its armed forces together with women and children and plunder their possessions. Likewise, the King James, American Standard, Revised Standard, and many other versions present the passage similarly. When we compare this decree with Haman's decree in 313, we see that it is an example of the principle of Lex Talanus. The retaliation matches the crime, or in this case, the contemplated crime. But for most modern readers, this is not acceptable. And so the NIV says that the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children. The difference here is fairly apparent when viewed from a written source, but this podcast isn't written, so I'll talk you through the difference. In the traditional reading, Xerxes gave the Jews the right to destroy, massacre, and exterminate any people or province that may attack them. In doing so, they were allowed to destroy, massacre, and exterminate the attacker's army, the attacker's women, and the attacker's children. If the word had been around at the time, some might have considered this to have been genocide. However, in its strictest definition, it was not, but it did get really close to the line. It's more of an extreme type of total war and scorched earth. In the NIV, the Jews were permitted to destroy, kill, and annihilate any army of any nation or province that attacked them, their women, or their children. And they were still able to plunder. With the exception of the plundering, this is more of a version of how wars have been waged in the last half century of the Western world. Armies are attacked, but a concerted effort is made to minimize civilian casualties. And yes, this is the same Xerxes that has been depicted in many movies, including the CGI-laden 300. Another difference between the NIV and earlier versions arises in Jeremiah 7.22-23, through 23, where it was written, For when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. According to scholars, there is nothing in the Hebrew sentence corresponding with the word just. Earlier versions were different. The Revised Standard Version was written, For in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this command I gave them, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. It is thought that the translators of the NIV added the word just, to prevent readers from thinking that Jeremiah is denying the laws concerning sacrificial offerings were given by God at Mount Sinai. The NIV's interpretation is justifiable, pardon the word choice, because the Hebrew manner of speaking often sets two things in opposition only to emphasize the greater importance of the one. It could be said that the addition of the word just only makes the meaning clearer, in our more exact way of speaking. However, some liberal scholars who claim that Jeremiah was written before the Pentateuch was compiled, and remember the Pentateuch are the first five books of the Old Testament, 
have argued that here the prophet really is denying that the laws concerning sacrifice were given by God. The NIV rendering prevents that interpretation. Does it really matter? Not to me. I have never felt the need for burnt offerings or sacrifices. But considering that both explanations are plausible, it further serves to demonstrate the problems in interpreting an old text to a modern language. A curious difference between the translations lies in Jonah 3.3, where the Hebrew source states that Nineveh was a city of three days' walk. The Revised Standard Version and some others have interpreted this to mean that the city was a three days' journey in breadth, which implies that the biblical author thought that Nineveh was at least 60 miles across. This is seemingly impossible, and archaeological excavations have revealed that the walled city was about three miles across, and so some scholars have considered it to be a gross exaggeration. But the three days' walk need not be interpreted this way. It may refer to the circumference of the greater Nineveh, where the suburbs are considered. My elementary school geometry tells me that if the circumference was 60 miles, then it would have been about 9.5 miles across. Now this certainly seems reasonable. By the way, this interpretation is supported by Genesis 10, 11-12, in which Nineveh and its suburbs are collectively called a, quote, great city. It could also be interpreted as saying that it would take a man three days to walk through all of its streets, without attributing any error to the author. The NIV's translation was that, quote, a visit required three days, end quote, and this appears to be a rather loose interpretation. The difference in the versions represents something greater. Specifically, the base texts are unclear and subject to interpretation. But at the same time, I'm not losing any sleep over the size of that city. And here most people thought Jonah was just about a whale of a big fish. In Mark 4.31, there is an example of how apologists define arguments in defense of biblical inerrancy that have caused the translators to adopt a linguistically unsound interpretation. As an aside, I will wholeheartedly try to avoid using the word apologist. In its traditional sense, it refers to someone who makes an argument in defense of a controversial point. But in today's lexicon, people tend to think it refers to someone who is admitting guilt. Back to Mark. In both the King James and Revised Standard versions, it reads, It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. And in the NIV it reads, It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Here, instead of a literal rendering, Jesus is represented as having said the mustard seed is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. In prior versions, he essentially calls it the smallest of all seeds on earth. Along the same line, Bruce Metzger also criticized the addition of the word your in Matthew 13.32, so it becomes, Though it the mustard seed is the smallest of all your seeds. The committee removed the word in the 2011 revision, adjusting the translation at these points so as to avoid an apparent contradiction between the biblical statement and known facts of modern science. But it is believed that Jesus was merely using a hyperbole and not attempting to make a scientifically precise statement. Critics view the NIV's attempt to rescue him from a technically incorrect statement as being misguided. In the book of Acts, there is an apparent contradiction between Acts chapter 9 verse 7 and chapter 22 verse 9 relating to Paul's conversion. Chapter 9 verse 7 reads, They heard the sound. And chapter 22, verse 9 reads, 
but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Perhaps like the crowd in John 12:29, they heard a sound from heaven, but it seemed like thunder to them. Of course, that's a bit speculative. The Revised Standard Version wrote the two verses essentially the same, hearing the voice but seeing no one. The NIV's writing of the two statements seems plausible, but overall it is a bit awkward. In the NIV, there is a noteworthy footnote on 1 Corinthians 11, 4-7, which states that these verses may alternately be rendered as, Every man who prays or prophesies with long hair dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with no covering of hair on her head dishonors her head. She is just like one of the shorn women. If a woman has no covering, let her be for now with short hair. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair shorn or shaved, she should grow it again. A man ought not to have long hair. This note is completely different from the Revised Standard Version, which stated, Any man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not veil herself, then she should cut off her hair. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her wear a veil. For a man ought not to cover his head. End quote. It is worth noting that the primary text of the NIV, the part in the book, not in the notes, was very similar to the Revised Standard Version. But the footnote may have been an attempt to harmonize this passage with 20th century styles and dress habits. However, Paul's head covering instruction is not being observed in most conservative churches today who would like to think that their practices are strictly in accordance with the scripture. The alternative translation accommodates them, not to mention that in every painting I have ever seen of Jesus or the disciples, they had what most modern observers would recognize as long hair. Roman Catholic critics have pointed out that the NIV seems to show a Protestant bias in its treatment of the Greek word paradosis, commonly translated as tradition. They claim that the word is literally translated as tradition in places where traditions are being criticized, such as Matthew chapter 15 verse 3 and Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. In other places, it is translated as the word teachings, where traditions are being recommended, such as 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 2 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 15 and chapter 3 verse 6. Kenneth Barker, a professor of the Old Testament and one of the NIV translators, tried to explain the translations in stating that the NIV, in quoting here, when paradosis was used in a positive way to refer to the passing on of apostolic teachings, we do not want the reader to think of the tradition of the elders, as in the Matthew 15 example, or in the traditions in general, but of apostolic teachings in particular. So when we believe that the reference was to the latter, we usually render the term as teachings, to make that meaning clear to readers. All words must be contextually nuanced. End quote. It is questionable if any reader would think that Paul was urging Christians to observe the so-called tradition of the elders in 1 Corinthians or 2 Thessalonians, because the contextual situation should prevent misunderstanding. A more literal translation would have probably served the purpose better. Many critics have tried to convince their audiences of an evangelical bias of the 
Many critics have tried to convince their audiences of an evangelical bias in the version. But it seems that the NIV was not very conservative in the presentation of interpretations associated with traditional theology. Perhaps the loudest criticism of the NIV is the version's parting from the established tradition in its translation of the word monogenes. In the Gospel of John, namely chapter 1, verses 14 and 18, as well as chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, and in the Epistle of John, chapter 4, verse 9. The NIV translates this word as one and only. Traditionally, the word was translated as only begotten. In the history of Christian doctrine, this translation has some significance. The Nicene Creed, which continues to be used as a confession of faith in many churches, declares that Christ is, and I'm quoting, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father, before all worlds, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father. To some, the significance of the genus in monogenus, to some, the significance of the genus in monogenus is that the Son shares essentially the same qualities of the Father. It expresses the equality between the Father and the Son, and prevents what the Arians taught, that the Son is a heavenly subordinate to the Father. I'll cover who the Arians were and what they believed later. In the archaic definition of the word, a person who is begotten shares the natural qualities of the person who begets. This traditional understanding of the word monogenes is highly backed up by linguistic evidence. But the NIV does not use the word, and the phrase chosen as a substitute does not carry the same meaning. Richard Longnecker attempted to explain the thinking of the NIV committee in his article, The One and Only Son, published in the NIV The Making of a Contemporary Translation in 1991. He presents linguistic evidence supporting the NIV's minimalistic one and only rendering, and explains that rendering only begotten is undesirable. And I'm quoting here, particularly because it leaves open the possibility of an etymological emphasis on genus, end quote. However, the committee probably did not intend to render the only begotten phrase as an alternative translation, as they did offer the traditional phrase in the footnotes until the 2011 revision. And probably most important, the modern meaning of the word is that begotten means to have brought into existence, and does not mean to be exactly the same. So if the translators were to have stayed true to their mission, they could not have used the word anyway. But none of this, of course, explains why the word was used in other parts of the New Testament in earlier versions. And bear in mind that the base word is beget, spelled B-E-G-E-T. Begat, spelled B-E-G-A-T, is the past tense, and begotten is the past participle. Surprisingly, or maybe not, in Matthew chapter 1 of the King James Version, the whole lineage of Jesus is traced from Abraham to Joseph, the husband of Mary. And in doing so, the word begat is used 39 times to describe how the Son descended from the Father. For example, Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob. And then I'll skip over to David, who begat Solomon, who begat Rabbam, and skipping over to Jacob, who begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. If the word communicated that they were of the same substance, then shouldn't Joseph have been as wise as Solomon? I searched high and low and could not find anyone who made that last argument. That's very curious. You may think this is a relatively minor issue, 
But there are many who take this issue, and specifically the begotten issue, very, very seriously. One needs to look no further than the first page of results when searching Google for the phrase NIV history. There is, given its rank in the search results, a seemingly popular website that claims that the NIV is not credible and its readers are being blinded by Satan. His words, not mine. That aside, it is clear that for most readers, the paraphrased renderings within the NIV are sometimes very helpful and even necessary. One such example is in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verses 8 through 11. In this, a literal reading of the base text is that the blessing given to the tribe of Levi is expressed with a mixture of singular and plural forms that is likely to confuse most non-scholars. Especially in verse 9, where it is said that the tribe of Levi personified as one man, and quoting the Revised Standard Version, disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed thy word and kept thy covenant. End quote. The meaning here is that the priests of the tribe of Levi enforced the word of God without partiality, without showing special favor to relatives. But readers of the Revised Standard Version who do not understand that the pronoun he and they refer to the Levites will quite naturally think that the subject of the pronoun they in the last sentence is brothers and children. The NIV avoids this misunderstanding by substituting a he for the literal they, reading, he did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but he watched over your word and guarded your covenant. By definition, this passage is not word for word, but a paraphrase, and quite easily arguable as being necessary for understanding the word, capital W, in modern English, printed in ink on paper. Many similar examples of helpful paraphrases could be provided, but I think you get my point. It must also be pointed out that in the NIV, such so-called equivalent renderings are used somewhat sparingly and are not used nearly as often as they are in several other modern versions, such as the Good News Bible and the New Living Translation. However, and to be expected, some overly dynamic equivalent translations create problems for preachers and teachers who try to use the NIV while focusing on verbal details of the text. Not to mention that the idiomatic style seemed to make the text less impressive and less memorable than some readers would prefer. Professor Wallace of the Dallas Theological Seminary was referring to this when he said, It is so readable that it has no memorable expressions, nothing that lingers in my mind. This is a serious problem for the NIV that is not always acknowledged. End quote. For me, I only have to think of the 23rd Psalm. The King James reads, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, while the NIV is, even though I walk through the darkest valley. I will be the first to admit that I have never started a sentence with the word yea, at least not without an H, and do not remember ever having made a statement where the word thee is repeated. But yet, when someone asks me about the verse, I always quote the King James. And in case you haven't figured it out yet, it's not because I'm a so-called King James-only adherent. It just sounds better to me. Many critics also claim that the NIV traded elegance and accuracy for readability. I happen to think the elegance criticism is spot-on, but the accuracy is certainly debatable. But you have to remember that the primary intention of the translators was to have something that was both written in contemporary English and made the message clearer. Last, it is widely believed that the growing popularity of modern translations, such as the NIV, 
whose popularity increase led to a corresponding decrease for the King James Version, stimulated the swift growth of the King James-only movement in the 1970s. Although that movement had existed since the 1920s, it seems to have reached critical mass when fundamentalist Christians began to lay aside the King James for more modern versions. This may very well be true, but as I pointed out several episodes ago, the King James Version was not perfect either. Numerous pastors, church leaders, and biblical scholars utilized the NIV for their personal study as well as to lead their congregations. And let's get back to Howard Long, whose conversation with a colleague eventually led to the NIV. Mr. Long, of course, endorsed the translation, saying that, and I quote, The NIV has been a godsend. It has been a lifesaver. It's something people can understand. End quote. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I will give a short review of the translation's histories and draw an analogy on why I use three different versions. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com, and you can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase The Churches the World as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.